In uh, the year 2000, a man named Robert Putnam wrote a landmark sociology book entitled Bowling Alone. And his premise was that uh, people have become increasingly disconnected from their social contacts, family, friends, neighbors. And uh, he talked about how we're paying the price for that as a society, there are negative effects. Uh, Putnam calls these connections that we have socially, he called it social capital, social capital. And that is defined as the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. He, he talked about how it's our interpersonal relationships that give us a shared sense of identity, a shared understanding, uh, shared norms and values and trust and cooperation and reciprocity. He traced how in our country social capital increased in the first half of the last century, but then it began decreasing afterwards. Today we belong, people in this country belong to fewer organizations, we socialize less with neighbors, uh, we meet with friends less often, we even meet with family less often than we used to. Uh, the, the book has a rather catchy title, Bowling Alone, and he got that from a study that showed that more people than ever are bowling, but we're doing it less and less in leagues. More people, but fewer groups, we are bowling alone. And he just used that single illustration as a title to capture the essence of a, a larger problem. Now Putnam identified various conditions that brought this about. Uh, there are changes in work habits, increasing pressures on time and making money, urban sprawl, uh, becoming a more mobile society. After all, the more you move from place to place, the less inclined you are to, to meet neighbors and connect people in neighborhoods and also the increase in television and the internet, which he calls uh, the, which he says it individualizes our time. It individualizes our time, an interesting expression. Putnam also, though, emphasized the value of churches in terms of social capital. In fact, he said, faith communities are arguably the single most important repository of social capital in America. Interesting statement. Churches are the number one place for social connections. Interestingly, I think we're probably all aware of, of the research that has been done a lot in recent uh, decades that show church attendance has been steadily declining for decades in most Western nations. And whatever the reasons are, whenever the single most important repository of social capital is on the decline, that's, that's not a good thing for a culture. So uh, Putnam's main concern is that breaking the bonds of social capital has a price. It, da it, it damages our civic health. And he made the point it even damages our mental health. And um, these social connections are critically important to having a happy and healthy and safe society. Now I got this book uh, shortly after it was written, but I hadn't thought about it for years until just recently when the, the pandemic brought on us 
a forced isolation from people all over the world. And I haven't heard the phrase uh, social capital applied to uh, the pandemic or to the results of the pandemic, but we've certainly read about the psychological impact that this decline in social capital has had as a result of the pandemic. And it has affected churches as well. Uh, I've seen articles recently about how many people just haven't come back to church after they reopened. There was an article in the Washington Post on October 15th that was titled, Millions Skip Church During Pandemic. Will They Return? The Wall Street Journal three weeks ago had an article titled, Churches Changed During the Pandemic and Many Aren't Going Back. And it said in that article that in-person church attendance is roughly 30 to 50% lower than it was before the pandemic, estimates the Barna Group, a research firm that studies faith in the United States. The October 27th uh, Atlantic Magazine had an article titled, My Church Doesn't Know What to Do Anymore. It was written by an Episcopalian pastor who said, I don't know how to make this work. After a year of trying to assure people that we were still the church, even when we weren't in the same room, I don't know how to convince them now of the importance of gathering in person. I know that if they are watching from home, fancier churches all over the country offer much slicker streamed services than our suburban church with its secondhand camera. I also know that returning to a church habit after months away gets harder with each passing Sunday. In 2020, no one could come to church. Now, some of my parishioners are choosing not to. I can see on social media that many are at restaurants or parties, but I don't see them in person on Sunday morning. So you start doing some research on this and you realize Protestant and Catholic leaders alike are scrambling to figure out ways to change with the times because of the changes that the times have brought on them. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, we never expected a 30 to 50% decline. I'm pleased to say that we have not seen that. But the pandemic did affect us in certain ways that way. You know, beginning on March 14th, 2020, we had 14 weeks of webcasting services in all of the United States and many other countries. And that included the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Pentecost. We even had an in-home video Passover. It was all strange. It was uncomfortable. It was foreign. Uh, you know, you, you just take the Passover, uh, like many of you, for the first time, my wife and I were at home watching a video, washing each other's feet for the first time. Now, I was glad that I could be there with my wife. We kept the Passover. We learned from it. It served its purpose, but we missed one of the important elements that I believe God wants us to glean from the Passover, and that is being there with other people, being there with the people that he has called. You know, being together at the Passover emphasizes the point that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, when he said, for we being many are one bread, and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The Passover is a very meaningful evening, and one of the meanings that 
that I gain from it every year is simply being there and looking around the room and seeing everybody else and just thinking about and focusing on and remembering what brought us all together. What brought us here? We're reaffirming together our covenant. That is a shared covenant. We all made the same exact covenant with God and we we look at each other and we see what God has done in the lives of each other and how he brought us together. We share washing one another's feet. We share that little piece of bread that's broken from one single piece. We share that wine that is poured from one single source. And yet it's a personal experience, but it's a shared experience. And I think God wanted us to, to gain something from that too. It reminds us of our bond that we have, that we are all blood relatives, that is, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are in the family of God. Missing one another at that Passover really drove that lesson home. And uh, probably as for many of you too, it, it really emphasized to me and reminded me of, to be wary or be aware of those who aren't able to ever go to the Passover because of health issues or being isolated and uh, to be aware of them. There's just such a, a disconnect when we're not assembled. If you think bowling alone is bad, Passover alone, Sabbath alone, those are things that are far worse. Being disconnected just isn't good. And it's not good for us. So all of this made me take a fresh look at a section of Scripture and a key phrase in one particular verse within that section of Scripture, and it elevated the importance of these verses as never before. Have you ever known a Scripture for years and years, and then you go through a situation that makes that Scripture come alive in a way it never had before, and it, it just really makes a, gives you a different look at it? Well, that's, that's what this did for me. It actually made me consider and commit to making some changes in my life and how I approach a very important issue. So I want to speak to that today, and I hope this will encourage and inspire and maybe even stir all of us to make some changes in our lives that will result in a deeper maturity in the church overall. That scripture is Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 and verse 25, Hebrews 10, 25 which says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The title for this sermon is, taken from this verse, the assembling of ourselves. Now, verse 25 is only part of a sentence, and that sentence is only part of a huge context. Now, the the statement in verse 25 alone is significant, and if for no other reason than we just read it here, we should do it because it's in, it's in God's Word. But, you know, God doesn't want us to do things uh, out of obligation only. He, he wants us to do things from the heart, from wholeheartedness, and from understanding why it's important. He doesn't want us to be guilted into doing something. He wants us to, to voluntarily want to do this. Now, this verse is interesting because 
when you look at the context, it gives you a different perspective of it. You begin to realize the reasoning behind these words in verse 25 and the weightiness and the importance and the consequences of what is being said here. So I, I do want to spend a little bit of time giving some of the context to where this verse is and what it is saying. Now, by context, I, I guess you could, if you wanted, really wanted to get the context, you have to go back to the very beginning and read the whole book because there's a flow to this whole book. But if we go back as far as, say, chapter 9, chapter 9 explains the sacrificial system in Israel and what it represented. It also shows its limitations of that system, how it was symbolic. The sacrifices were symbolic of Christ and his personal sacrifice. It describes the importance of the sacrifice of Christ and how he was offered once to bear the sins of many and how he will appear a second time for salvation. Chapter 10 carries that thought right on through and it reiterates how the animal sacrifices foreshadowed things to come but uh, they could not take away sins but now we are under a new covenant in which we have been sanctified. God's people have been set apart by Christ's sacrifice. And because of that new covenant, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God's laws written in our hearts and in our minds. Our sins have put, been put away. They are no longer remembered. He touches on all of these, these elements. Now, I don't have time here to, to adequately expound on all these thoughts but they are of great, great magnitude. And what I would suggest to you is that you go home and go to the FI Online uh, program that we have, the website, and go to the, the FI Online series on Hebrews and go to class number nine. And in class number nine, Mr. Johnson's uh, presentation goes through a scripture by scripture explanation of all of this, and it will really give you a, a depth of background. I'm going to actually borrow a few things from, from what he said today. But let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter 10. After all of that background about the sacrificial system, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now when you read on from here, there seems to be sort of an abrupt change in the subject. But it really isn't. As you go on, it comes back to talking again about Christ's sacrifice and how this really is a matter of life and death for the people of God. It's really important. So it talks about that, and then we have this little inset of verses 19 through 25, and then it goes back to that continuing theme. But uh, verses 19 through 25 are inserted in the middle of, of this flow of a topic here to show us the responsibilities we have and the reactions that we should have to being the beneficiaries 
of God's calling and the sacrifice made for us. So going on to verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the witness of two or on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought of worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. So, you know, it's a powerful powerful uh, section of verse. And that's sort of the, that is the general overall context. He says, comprehend what, what he's telling us here. You're part of a living miracle. The sacrifice of Christ has made it possible. What it means for us, what, it, what, what has happened in our lives. God called us. We've been given this gift of repentance. We responded. We, we turned to him. He forgave our sins. He's put our sins away forever. They, they've been buried and forgotten. We have entered this covenant with God, and this astonishing miracle has taken place. We have been given the Spirit of God, the mind of God. Somehow that happens that we can't even explain how the mind of God can blend with the mind of a human being and changes our entire thinking in, in that mind. It converts us to thinking God's way, living as he lives. And that spirit is a guarantee that someday we can live forever. The, the whole picture is just uh, monumental and magnificent. All of that leads to what, what uh, if you want to put it in a modern term, what we would call today in the media department, a CTA. All of this leads to a CTA, a call to action. In the media department, whenever we're writing, producing videos, anything like that, blogs, articles, whatever it is that we are producing, we tell everyone, include somewhere in there a CTA, a call to action. In other words, what do you want the reader to do as a result of what they're reading? Maybe you want them to go read a follow-up article. Maybe you want them to download something else. Maybe you want them to go watch this, but always Tell the reader, here's, here's your next step. Here's what you need to do as a result of what you've just read. The call to action is really important. And there's a call to action in this whole explanation about the, sacrifice, uh, the sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ. The call to action begins in verse 19. When he begins that verse by saying, therefore, therefore is an important word. It means, consequently, as a result of everything that's been said, as a result of everything said, this is what your call to action is. God is telling us that everything that follows is important to act upon. It's important to do because it relates to his entire plan of salvation. His entire plan of salvation. This is weighty, weighty material. So verse 19 again, therefore, brethren, we have boldness to enter into the holiest place. We have a new way that he 
that he did for us by his sacrifice through his flesh. And we have a high priest over the house of God. Since we have all this, he's saying, therefore, since we have all this and we have this high priest over the house of God, what is the house of God? First uh, Timothy 3.15 says, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. A thought is being developed here. A thought is being developed. Where is it leading us? What is he going to tell us? He's already explained some things. Now he says, therefore, since we have this, now here's what we're supposed to do. Verse 22, let us, let's stop right there. Let's read the first two words and stop and think about that for a minute. Let us, what does that tell us? In the next three verses, we're going to read this phrase, let us, we're going to read it three times. Each time it's telling us, let us do something. As a result of what's taken place, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. It tells us that what we have learned should produce some kind of reaction. This isn't just nice intellectual knowledge. It's not just explaining something about sacrifices. This explanation is supposed to provoke a response. It's something that's supposed to change the way we live. So verse 22, here's the first let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, I would recommend highly that you go back to that class nine and hear Mr. Johnson's explanation of these points. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's interesting, as you go on from here, faith and faithfulness is going to be emphasized quite a bit. The just shall live by faith. Uh, he says later, then it goes into chapter 11, which totally focuses on faith. But again, I'm not going to emphasize these first two let us statements very much. Verse 24 takes a turn. The third let us takes a turn. The first two let us statements are directed very personally. They are directed toward things that are personal in, your, in one's own life. Drawing near to God with a pure heart is something that is deeply personal and internal to each of us. Holding fast the confession of your faith is something that's deeply personal and internal to each of us. But now he turns our thinking outwardly. Outwardly. Think about what's going on with others, he says. Verse 24, and let us consider one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The Greek word for consider means to perceive, to fully observe, to understand, to fix one's eyes or mind upon. Now, what that means, it's not thinking about something on a shallow, superficial level. Consider means give this deep thought, taking care to understand one another. 
giving thought to this. You know, if the skip ahead in my thinking here to verse 25, which we will come to, how can we do that in isolation? How can somebody really deeply consider someone else in isolation or without spending time with them? The very statement, consider one another, uh, it assumes there is a mutual dynamic going on. If I'm considering you and you're considering me, or if I'm considering him and he's considering her and she's considering her and she's considering him, there is something mutual that's going on. There's a mutual activity, a relationship, an interaction between people. As Mr. Johnson mentioned in his class, Christianity was never designed to be a monastic, separatist approach to life. God never designed the church to be a monastic, separatist approach. It is designed to be lived among people. That's the way, that's, that's the way God is. How can anyone not be involved with others and then be able to consider them in order to stir them up? If we're not involved with somebody, there's no, there, there's no one to consider. Mr. Johnson also had a quote in there, in that uh, class, that faith and hope can be practiced when you're all alone, but love can only be practiced when you're with others. Faith and hope can be practiced all alone, but love is practiced with others. It is an outgoing concern. You know, the more I've thought about this, the more I have come to believe that one of the contributing, there are many contributing factors, but one of them to the statement in Matthew 24 that says the love of many will grow cold. I believe in the world today that isolation is one of those contributing factors. It's going to be one of those contributing factors because when we're isolated, our levels of concern decrease. It's the principle out of sight, out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. So as you think about the context, we're taught to look carefully at and esteem Jesus Christ as our high priest. We're told to look at some of these internal things about faith and hope. And then we're told to look at one another. One another. Consider one another. Consider what? There may be a lot of things to, I, I can consider personally, yeah, I got my eye on you, all right. I'm watching you. But that's not, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about examining to judge somebody. What is he talking about? It's not just anything. He says specifically, in order to stir up love and good works, in order to help and to sharpen someone else. You know, as I read through this, I, I had, I'll admit, I had to ask myself, do I really do this? Do I stop and consider others? Uh, you know, we, we all consider people when we run into them, when we communicate with them. But do I ever just step back and, and go down the list, you know, like Mr. Vaughn said in the prayers, to, to just really print those off and look at them and think about their situation? How much do I consider others? Well, I do to a degree. We all do to a degree. But do I really think about them? Who are they? What are they like? What are their strengths and weaknesses? 
What has made them the way they are? What have they gone through in life? Do I really know them? Do I know what their struggles are? If I was going to, to kneel down and pray for this person, would I know anything to pray about? Or would it just be a general, uh, dear God, please, please help them? <laughs> you know, a general statement because I really wouldn't know anything about their lives. So, you know, I got to thinking about that and, and my conclusion was, well, of course, sure, I consider some people. Could I do better at, a, at considering more? Well, of course, to that as well. You know, it is natural to consider ourselves. It's natural to consider our families. It's natural to consider the people who are within our realm of, of contact. But God says to think like him, to learn to be like him, we have to look past our realm in that sense. We have to learn to love all of humanity. And that's hard. And we probably have to do that more step by step. And a good place to learning how to do that is looking first within the spiritual family that we have, that he's given us, those to whom we, with whom we share the most important things in life. But again, you can't get past this word consider without realizing we're being told give thought to this. Give some serious thought to this. Observe accurately. And to do that, we must know. And to know someone, we must be around them. And we must be interacting. Maybe to use a popular term today, he would be saying, we are to be influencers. We are to be influencers. And we are to be influenced. If we're all fulfilling this verse, and we're all thinking about, okay, how do I consider one another, then you're considering me too. I'm considering you, you're considering me, and that means that I'm to be influenced by you. You're to be influenced by me. It goes both ways. We're to be influencers and to be influenced. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been positively influenced spiritually by somebody else in this room? How many of you have ever been positively influenced spiritually by somebody else in this room? Hands go up. Absolutely. How many of you have ever influenced somebody else in this room? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands there, but I would hope that all the hands would go up there too. Maybe sometimes we don't think we're influencing somebody or we're not aware of it, but we are to be influencing others. We could tell stories all day long about that. None of us is above needing to be influenced. And none of us is beneath God's ability to use us to influence somebody else. God's spirit at work in our lives is supposed to influence other people as well as change our own lives. That's so important. We are to consider how we can do something in a spiritual arena of stirring up love and good works. And it begins by considering, by considering. It originates in thinking about it, studying this. Very important. What's also interesting is that verse 24 is something that everybody can do. Everybody can do this. There are some things in the church that 
not everybody can do. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, are all apostles, are all, uh, are all uh, prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And he posed that as rhetorical questions because the answer is obviously no. Not everybody does everything. But then he goes on, Paul does in that area, to talk about what all can do. And he said, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And what are the best gifts that he showed? What's the more excellent way that Paul showed? Well, he goes right on from that verse to talk about love for one another. That's right at the end of chapter 12, and he goes right on into chapter 13, which is the love chapter. And he describes there what love looks like. And so that's something everybody can do. We're all called on to do that. And one of the best gifts that we can desire, one of the most excellent gifts, is to be able to stir someone else to love and good works, to be more loving, to be more productive. We can all do that. Now, we might ask the question, why? Why should we strive to do that? Well, again, think about the context. What kind of love did God in Christ show for us? This, this statement is put into a context. That context has to do with the love that God showed for us. God stirred us, did he not? By calling us, by converting us. God stirred us to love and good works. He tells us then, well, just do the same thing in return. Do the same thing in return. And it's not just toward God, but he says it's manifested toward others as well. Now, it starts with us and God, but it reflects to others. You know, Paul said in Romans 6, he said, present yourselves as instruments to God, instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourself. That means you go to God in prayer and you talk to God about this and, and you, you go to God and you, you present yourself as an instrument. You, that word can mean a tool. And you ask God, help me to be a tool in your hands. And considering one another is actually allowing God to use you to help somebody else. God can use every one of us to help other people. And that opens us up to allowing God to use you as a tool of righteousness for use that he has. So I wanted to spend some time on that phrase, consider one another. There's a lot in there. And it's setting the stage for the thought that comes later about assembling ourselves together. Because if we're not assembled together, how can we stir up someone else? How can we do that? So the very statement implies and assumes that we are around and with others. Now, Let's focus a little bit on this phrase, in order to stir up love and good works. Stir up in the Greek means to stimulate a change, to stimulate a change in motivation or attitude, to spur someone. You can't force anybody to do love and good works. You can't force it, but you can spur it, you can motivate. You can stir it up. You know, it's 
It's hard to walk in this room. It's hard to come to Sabbath services and not be involved with other people, isn't it? You walk in here, you're going to be involved with others. That's just the nature of it. Have you ever asked yourself, okay, since I'm going to come to services and I'm going to be involved with others in this assembling of myself, how can I stir up someone? How can I help someone else be triggered in some way positively? This word does not imply just sitting back and hoping good things about people. It's not, not the implication at all. It involves personal interaction. It involves prodding, encouraging, stirring up as an action we take. It's, it's a designed action. We consider and we figure a way how to go about doing this. It's not accidental. How is it done? Well, when you really think about it, the, the number of ways it's applied are, are, are immense. I'll talk personally, but I believe you can identify with everything that I'm going to say. There are times in my life I've been stirred by being warned. There are times in my life I've been stirred by being encouraged. There are times in my life I've been stirred by seeing somebody's example. They didn't even know it, but you're just watching and seeing somebody's example, and it, it stirs you. There are times when I've been stirred by hearing a good explanation that helped me understand something better. There are times I've been stirred by being reminded of certain scriptures I might have forgotten. There are times I've been stirred simply by being around people when I've been alone too much. There are times I've been stirred simply by somebody saying, how are you doing? And then listening. There are so many ways we can be stirred to love and good works. I hope there have been times when I've stirred others by the same method. But after studying this, I've resolved that I'm just going to try to consciously do that more now. It's important, brethren, because we also know there's a spirit at work in this world that's trying to stir us as well. There's a spirit out there that's trying to stir us to evil, to hatred, to bad works. And that spirit is hard at work. And we are called upon here to help one another resist that by stirring up the opposite, stirring up love and good works. You know, it's like Paul told the Corinthians, your zeal, your zeal has stirred the majority. That's a great thing to tell a congregation, your example, your zeal has stirred the majority of these other churches. Paul, I mean, Peter wrote that he was going to stir you up by reminding you. And that does, that, that, that works. Paul told Titus to stir up the people. He said, these things affirm constantly, remind them, put it in the minds that they which have believed in God may be careful to maintain good works. He said, Titus, stir them up so they will do these good works. So scripture here and in other places reminds us that we can, we can incite others to good things. We can stir others to good things. You know, I look at this and I think, you know, it'd be great if I could stir myself up to everything I need every time I need it. But if there's one thing I've learned after 70 years, I don't have that full ability. Sometimes 
We need other people to help us. We need other people to prod us. We need others, and we need God working through others, sometimes telling us, here's what you really need to do, or here's what you need to think about, or have you considered this, or God will help you. I will help you. We're here for you. Don't give up. You know, all sorts of things that others can say that stir us in the right direction. I think it's one of the main ways that Ephesians 4.16 works. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 4.16 states, by whom the whole body is fitted and joined together, each or every joint adding its own strength for each individual part to work according to its function. So the body grows until it has built itself up in love. This whole, this whole statement here of stirring one another to love and good works is how that comes to pass in Ephesians 4.16. Let's have one more thing sink in. Does not verse 24 carry the weight of a command? I think Paul was saying it in a nice way here. He was saying it in a nice way, but this was inspired by God. Let's do this. Let us do this. It tells us what we have to take on as a responsibility. Now, verse 24, or sorry, verse, yes, verse 24 tells us what to do. Verse 25 goes on to tell us how and when and where we have the best opportunity to do it. Verse 25 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we don't know for sure what was going on at the time of this writing when it says, as is the manner of some. Uh, but apparently, some were habitually missing over a period of time. Why was that? Who knows? Was it fear of persecution? Was it fear of being around people who were uh, being rejected by society? Was it apathy, just not being interested anymore? Were some having doubts about the benefit or the necessity of assembling together? Was it some setting a poor example and more others following that example? Were some dissatisfied with other members in the church or the minister or something else going on? It doesn't tell us. But I've seen these things over the decades. And so, you know, it's reasonable to assume that human nature being what it is, it might have been some of those same factors that worked back then. But whatever it was, one thing is certain. If we don't assemble together as God's people, and as verse 25 says, we cannot fulfill what verse 24 says. If we're not assembled, we can't do what verse 24 says. Now let's consider this a little bit. Not forsaking. What do you think of when you hear the word forsake or forsaken or forsaking? What do you, what do you think of? It's a terrible word. Someone who has been forsaken Somebody else has just walked away from them. They, they're, they're abandoned. One of the most heart-wrenching statements in the Bible is when Christ was being crucified. 
And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You read that today and you can feel the pain in that. It's a strong word, but let's consider something here. Is the emphasis here in this context, is the emphasis on forsaking doing something? Is it forsaking something or is it about people? Is it about people? Is it only about, hey, make sure you're in the seat when church starts, when the sermon starts so you can hear the message? Is that what the main emphasis is, is on, or is it not? The context in verse 24 is clearly about taking care of one another. The emphasis then following in verse 25 cannot be only about go to church so you can hear the sermon. It's not just about an event. It's not just about a meeting. He says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. Ourselves, the people, the assembling of ourselves. I think we learned something back in that 14 weeks of nobody being able to go to church and not being able to assemble back in 2020. If somebody said, well, you know, I can still catch the sermon at home on the webcast. One thing we learned back then is, yes, we can catch the sermon, but we can't catch the fellowship. Can't catch the fellowship on a, on a webcast. We can't catch when you say, oh, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder how this person, I really want to see so-and-so. I miss being with this person or that person. You can't catch fellowship on the webcast. We can't stir one another nearly as effectively. We can't build those relationships. We can't foster the family. We can't build the social capital that is within what Putnam called the most important repository in our society. It's not just the forsaking of the sermon. It's the forsaking of ourselves together. Now, let me clarify something. Uh, if someone cannot go to services, that's not forsaking. If someone's sick, if someone is infirm and they just can't go to services, that's not forsaking. The ones who can't go, maybe they are ones that we especially need to consider in order to stir them up because they probably need it a lot. Nor is this saying you have to go to church even when you're sick because if you don't go, you're forsaking. No, uh, that would violate other scriptures that tell us to stay away from others when we're contagious with something. I appreciate everybody wanting to come to church no matter what. I don't appreciate them bringing in sicknesses that'll make me not be able to go to church next week. I think we all understand that. Uh, going or staying home when you're contagious is love. That's not forsaking. No, the Greek, the, in the Greek, forsaking means leaving behind, leaving in the lurch, abandoning. The English Standard Version translates it as neglect, since it implies a failure to do something 
that we ought to be able, ought to be doing and are able to be doing. It's neglecting it. That's what forsaking means. It doesn't even have to mean complete abandonment. Not complete, not complete apostasy. It can just be something that becomes more and more habitual, where it's less and less and less. I read a, a great analogy. It said, if a husband neglects his wife, would he say he has abandoned her? Probably not. What would she say? What if he took her to the store and then dropped her off at the store and then drove off and neglected to come back and get her until the next day? And when he does come back, he says, hey, you know, I, I'm sorry, I got caught up. I just, I ended up playing poker all night with the guys and forgot to come back and get you. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't abandon you. I wonder how she might feel about that. What if he did it on a regular basis? He'd say, hey, we're married. I haven't abandoned you. But how might she feel about that? I read that in the context of another survey that uh, was surveying church attendance primarily in the evangelical world. And one of the questions was, do you regularly attend services? And there was a little asterisk by the word regularly. And I looked down at the bottom, it says, by regularly, we mean once a month. <laughs> wow, if that's regular attendance, you know, so it makes you look at the results and say, well, I wonder, you know, would God consider that regular? Or would he might feel like being a little bit abandoned or forsaken? So that's an important thing. Now, what does it mean to assemble? What does that mean? I read some other articles that said some pastors today are reassessing what this verse means. They're reassessing what this verse really means. Uh, that's a dangerous thing when we take a societal situation and we reassess the scripture. We, we ought to take the scripture and reassess the societal situation. But they were reassessing what does a symbol mean? Does that really mean that we have to meet? Uh, it's not a difficult thing to understand. The Greek word literally means gathering together in one place. That, that's what it means. The only other place it's used is 2 Thessalonians 2.1, which says, concerning the coming of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. When he comes, we're going to gather together. We're going to assemble. It's pretty clear what it means. In every place where the verb form is used, it's translated gathered together. So when some people out here in the church world try to reconfigure it to adapt it to modern society, where, where they say, well, if everybody wants to stay home and watch a replay of, of church on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night, uh, that qualifies as assembling together. Uh, that's, uh, they're doing the scripture injustice. That's just not what it means. The Hebrew word is convocation. That, that's the Hebrew equivalent. It means something called and a public meeting, a sacred assembling, convoking a meeting called by authority. It goes back to the fourth commandment. Uh, Leviticus 23.3 says, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. 
When you go through Leviticus 23 and Numbers about the holy days, all of those holy days, it talks about having convocations, gatherings of people. There is no question this means a worship service where people gather, one that we are called to. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, volleyball practice tomorrow and the tournament two weeks from now, that that's an assembling of ourselves. It's talking about our convocations. What was the assembling for? What was the assembling for here? Was it, is it just to hear the sermon? If it is, then sure, we can do that through other means. But again, what's the context? The context here is about the people of God gathered together to stir one another to love and good works. Not assembling, forsaking the assembling does the exact opposite. It bars us from being able to help and care for others. So it's very important, but it had become the manner of some that he wrote here. It had become the manner of some to forsake that. The manner, the custom, the habit. Habits are built by repetition and time. Repetition and time. And that's apparently what was taking place. It becomes more and more customary. And as something becomes customary, it becomes easier to do. It becomes the path of easier uh, traveling. So there's a clear sense here as well as, you know, recognize there's, there's a danger in that and consider what is missing. Now it goes on, uh, verse 25, exhorting one another. What does that mean? If you told your wife on the way here today, well, you know, when I go to church today, I'm going to exhort some people. What would that mean? What, what would you mean? I wanted to make sure I understood what it meant, so I looked it up and I, I learned a new word. I'd never heard this word before. One of the definitions in Strong's Concordance was hortation. H-O-R-T-A-T-I-O-N. Hortation, that must be a typo. Well, what in the world is that? Actually, it's, an, it's a word. We don't use it anymore. It's an old word. And it means simply to encourage. It means to encourage. Uh, ex means out of. So exhortation means out of encouragement. Uh, you're doing something for someone out of encouragement. It's defined as the act of inciting to worthy deeds, inciting to what is good or commendable. It's a totally positive meaning. If you said, I'm going to exhort people today, it meant I intend to go encourage some people. Here's what's even more interesting. The Greek word for exhortation is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Now that may or may not ring a bell for you. It's closely related to parakletos. You might remember that from John 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus was explaining the Holy Spirit. What did he, how did he define or call the Holy Spirit? He called it the comforter, which is the Greek word parakletos. Very close to what that word exhort is. Chapter 14, verse 26, the helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. That in itself sometimes is a great source of comfort, being reminded of things that God has said to us. That can be very comforting. 
There are additional definitions of this word, you know, to call to one side, to speak to, to instruct, beseech, console, encourage, strengthen. You begin to get the picture of what exhorting means. Do we need this? Of course we do. Do we need to help others in this way? Of course we do. So he's making the point that the assembling of ourselves together, in doing so, we are given direction with what we ought to do with that time and that occasion. It's part of God's will for how he works with us. And then this sense of urgency is added, so much the more as you see the day approaching. So much the more as you see the day approaching. He said, don't get trapped by doing this less and less. Do it more and more. We need this. We need to be doing this. And when he says the day, he's talking about the day of the Lord. Does anyone doubt that we will need that support of one another as time goes by in the age in which we're living? You know, will the day come? Will the day come when it'll be extremely difficult for God's people to assemble together? When there might be government restrictions? When there might be dangers due to any number of possible scenarios, when there could be economic hardships that would make it virtually impossible. Those conditions already exist today for some of our brethren in some parts of the world. There are some people who still aren't able to meet regularly for Sabbath services based on where they may live. So we need to consider and think about and ask myself, do I need to make the most of every opportunity? Because what if the day comes when I won't have opportunity to assemble together? So important. Well, after studying more in depth the meaning of these scriptures, I gave some thought to what does this mean more in personal or practical application? A few weeks ago at Sherman, I asked a few members after services a question. I said, besides coming to hear the sermon. Why else do you come to services? Why do you come? Had some great conversation. If you ever want a, if you want a good conversation today after church, just talk with one another about why do you come to church besides to hear the message? It became very clear that there are things that cannot happen without the assembling of ourselves and things that can only happen when we assemble ourselves. As one person said, there is a convergence of God's spirit at services. You're having people come together who all are converted all week long at work and on the job and at school, uh, you know, and, and in a society. You're like an island in the stream, and that stream is this river of carnality, and you're trying to stay strong. But you come to services, and for that time in the week, the stream is God's people, it's, it's, it's God's spirit, and you are in an atmosphere that is spiritual, and that's wonderful. Another man said, this is my family. We were standing talking. He said, you see that young man over there? He said, I knew him when he was this big. He said, you see that girl over there? And he was pointing at two different young adults who are married and have kids now. And he said, I knew them from the time they were born. He said, they're like, they're like my kids. I'm like their uncle, their grandpa. And he said, even if I don't talk to them at church, it comforts me just to see them across the room because they're here and I see them. And that gives, me, that gives me great comfort. There was another person who said, I'm alone all week and I crave contact. I, I need hugs. I need to be around positive people. 
It may be somebody who struggles a bit fighting negativity and said, I need to be around positive people. And I get that when I go to church. Another person told me, said, years ago when I had my cancer, and this happened when she was a young adult, went through a long, hard trial. She said, during treatment, I'd wake up some Sabbath mornings and I would think, I just can't do it today. I'm too tired. I hurt too much. I'm too weak. She said, but as the day went on, I just felt this need. It wasn't a physical need. It was a spiritual, emotional need to see my friends, to see my loved ones. And church was where I could do that. And that would grow through the morning so much that it overcame the physical. And I would go to church and I would come home and I would feel so much better and it would help me through the week, the entire week. It's these things that help us tremendously. Something else came to mind while I was thinking about that. Some years ago, I was in a church area and I watched for a couple of years and there was a lady there who was just, you know, she was a whirlwind of activity. If you wanted something done, you give it to this person. And her heart was totally in the work and in the church and just serving all the time. And I listened to some other people talk about her. And so one day I went up to her and I said, you know, I, I want to take you off of all the duties that you have assigned to you. She said, why? And I said, I want you to become a floater. She said, a floater? She said, what's that? I said, well, I've been listening to some people. I've heard people over the last couple of years tell me, you know, so many times I walk in here and I'm feeling down, I'm discouraged, and that lady comes to me and sits down with me, and when I leave, I'm feeling really good. I said, you have a gift. I said, I wish I had it like you do. You have a gift of being able to spot people who are needy, some, the people who need something. And I don't want you tied down to the kitchen and not being able to do that. And I want you, your job now is to just be freed so you can go around and visit with people at church. And when somebody is in need, you're the one to help them. He said, well, who's going to run the kitchen? I said, I don't know. You can find somebody. You know the ones who are helpers? I said, get some of these young people. You know, they, they want to do it. Well, they'll, they'll probably mess things up. I said, yeah, they'll probably, they'll burn the coffee in the first couple of weeks. That's okay. You know, we'll survive. They'll learn. But do what you're good at. You're good at helping people in this way. And so she did. She became the church floater. I never put her on the organizational chart that way. But that's what she was. The thing of it is, that's, that, it may be a gift, and some people are innately good at that, but that is also something that can be developed. We can develop that. These things unify us. These things get us through tough times. And even when times aren't tough, the relationships built prepare us for when times do come that are tough. Now, let me leave you with a little bit of exhortation about another element. In studying this, I decided I need to elevate my game. I need to raise my game in this. Apply verses 24 and 25 more effectively. And the concept I want to leave with you is not just assembling ourselves together, but let's call it intentional assembling. Intentional assembling. And what that means is that think about not just going to church, 
because you might say, well, I'm going to go to church regardless. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. But thinking about and planning to make it more purposeful, more intentional in using the time that we have assembling with one another. Before we come to services, I must intend to consider one another. I must intend to stir up someone else to love and good works. I must intend to exhort. That is done first by praying about it, by asking God to help us fulfill what he tells us here, asking God, help me to know how I can help others, help me to discern when somebody may need a little pick-me-up and a little encouragement, help me to see needs that I, if I can help someone, help me to be alert to that. Help me to think about others in their situations. And sometimes we have to ask God, help me to be open to others helping me if I need a word of encouragement or help. But I need to go with intention, intention, consciously aiming to fulfill these verses, not just going to church and let's see what happens, but thinking about these things. It means, means giving conscious thought to questions like, who do I want to see this week? Who do I need to see? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to say to them? What are some words that maybe I could steer a conversation that way? What good can I do for someone and think specifically of that person today? Sometimes it means considering, am I the one who needs to be provoked to love and good works? Is there someone I need to talk to who maybe has the wisdom and the experience who can say something that might help me in my time of need, because sometimes we are there. Sometimes, brethren, here's the way it is, sometimes we need to ask God to give us help, and sometimes we need to ask God to help us give. Sometimes we need to ask God to give us help, and sometimes we need to ask God to help us give. And these verses are talking about times where we ask God to help us give to others. Sometimes he works that way through us. Intentional assembling will help create those opportunities. When God created Adam, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. And that's not just for marriage, that's life. God created us to be together. Uh, it's a principle of life because that's the way God is. And God's creating a family and God is creating his children. We see a society today that is increasingly bowling alone, increasingly letting the bonds of social connection erode. And that's much to our hurt as a culture. And that's nothing but Satan's doing. That's, that's Satan's work. One of the long-term consequences of this pandemic is that it has accelerated that all over the world, the distancing between people. We talk today, this word social distancing, being six feet apart, has become part of our terminology. But I think as time goes by, it's going to also be a metaphor for what has happened in the relationships of people, that we have become another step, a big step, distanced more from one another, disconnected. It has affected the religious world around us in a negative way. But here's, here's the thing. 
This can work for our good. It can work to affect us in a positive way if what we have considered today. Breaking down these verses has made us think deeply about what God tells us here and makes us think and commit to intentionally putting in to practice the assembling of ourselves together. That will help strengthen the bonds in God's family in a world that is becoming weaker and weaker.